Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Standard Issue podzine and indeed to 2019. I hope it is a smasher for you, even if politically, economically and geographically it looks very much like it'll mostly be on fire. I'm Mickey Noonan and I once got three strikes in a row at Tempin Bowling. That's called a turkey, isn't it? Is it? That's a strangely festive fact. Mm. Oh, I say that. That might not actually be a fact. I might have made that up. Did I, I get was, a turkey? I thought it was called a turkey. It is now. Mm-hmm. I once got a turkey at Temp in Bowling. Yeah. I once won some meat in a pub quiz. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the same thing. I, I'm the northern one. What's going on here? <laughs> That's not even my facts. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I now own more than one saucepan. How Thanks, many Father saucepans? Christmas. Four saucepans. Are they all the same size? (laughs) No, they are in varying sizes. Look at you. I know. You can't see it, listeners, but she is smug as fuck. Because I was down to one, because I was actually having a Skype chat with Mickey when my last but one saucepan exploded. So now I have more. It's very exciting. I mean, I think that's a bit selfish that you have two facts because I'm Jen Offord and I resolved to find some more interesting facts. <laughs> Just leave an egg on the boil. While you're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I did once blow up my mum's microwave. Like, literally blew the doors off the hinges by trying to boil an egg. <laughs> the door hit me in the face. Oh, no. And my mum was quite worried about my face, so fortunately not that angry about the fact that I just broke her microwave. You see, when I was ironing at my mum's house once and the iron exploded in my hand and I dropped it on the floor and it burnt the carpet, yeah. it was ages before anybody actually said, are you all right? Yeah. And my mum was just like, the iron or the carpet! And I was like, the hand. Yeah, no, no the face. <laughs> yeah. Continuing this subject, I was once making pancakes while my mum was at work and as I flipped my pancake, the handle stayed in my hand but the rest of the pan went up in the air and I thought, oh shit, that is going to hit the lino and burn it. What I better do is catch that. (laughs) (gasps) Caught it, immediately threw it away again because it was very hot and so it bounced across the lino and took some good chunks out of the kitchen floor. What about your hands? Yeah, burnt them as well. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Later on, we catch up with Marina Gask, editor and co-founder of online magazine Audrey, a cracking site cocking a snook to the midlife comfort zone. Standard issue favourite Paula Maguire shares her tips for embracing positivity in 2019. Jen and I talked to filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen about Supreme Court Justice and all-round superwoman Ruth Bader Ginsburg ahead of the release of their new documentary, RBG. Notorious... I chat to Kalechi Okafor about the art of twerking and making fitness fun. And I do Disney's cars. But first, the temerity of vegans. Be careful of raging snowflakes. And I see no ships. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're back after a long shutdown. Because they won't let me build a wall. In a world where pretty much every politician stinks worse than my last toilet, it takes something special to stand out. So, uh, well done, Chris Grayling, for giving the £13.8 million Brexit ferry contract to Seaborne Freight, a company with no ships, no trading history and currently no offices. That's right, a system that works is being replaced with something untested and not at all equipped and Brexit analogies have just eaten themselves. Oh God, it's exhausting. (laughs) Still, Theresa May gave us all a laugh when she referred to the film I, Daniel Blake as I, Daniel Craig (laughs) on The Mar Show. I didn't actually see this right enough. I was in the middle of a Netflix marathon of What's Eating Gilbert O'Sullivan, (laughs) The Curious Case of Benjamin Britten and Being John Prescott. That last one was an endurance test. I loved it. That's very meta. (laughs) 
Pauline, it's happened again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's the punchline to my favourite joke that I wrote, and I'm not even going to explain it. The army found itself in a communication shitstorm after a soldier used in a recruitment campaign threatened to quit over the caption used alongside his image. The offensive word in question? Snowflake. Apparently the army needs your compassion. Over in the US, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, or Tenacious E, as no one at all is calling her. Come on, guys, let's make this a thing. Tenacious E. We can make this happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can. Anyway, she's announced she will enter the Democratic primary for the 2020 election, which is good news for women in the US. And also for people who like to pretend they don't have a problem with women being president, just the ones who want to be. Oh, God, is it all going to happen again? Ah, oh, it's up for nothing against Elizabeth Warren. I just find her voice, you know, it's really great. It's nothing to do with her being a woman. No. What about her emails? I was going to her emails. <laughs> Prada was forced to pull a line of toy-style accessories dubbed Prada Malia, which featured black monkeys with red lips that resembled gollywogs. Now then, in fairness, that was all the way back in 2018. Oh, they were still young men then, weren't mm. they? Absolutely. Different. And Prada is now setting up a diversity council in 2019. Geez, uh, the fashion industry catches on right fast, eh? Yeah. Big up to Olivia Coleman for a big win at the Golden Globes, at which the friend of the show took home the prize for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. Coleman, who plays Queen Anne in The Favourite, rendered the audience, to quote the film itself, cuntstruck as she thanked the organisers for the sandwiches and referred to co-stars Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone as my bitches. Lovely stuff. Oh, she is lovely stuff. Mm, she is. She really is. Do you know what's not lovely stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Literal wanker Louis C.K. is fast beating off competition hey. for the prize well, of hey. most entitled white male. And as we all know, that competition is stiff. Hey. In November 2017, the comedian admitted to repeatedly exposing himself and masturbating in front of unwilling women and said he was going to wait for, quote, a long time to listen. This long time, equated to a whole nine months, seemingly spent listening to the little voice in his head saying, don't give a toss about those women whose careers you ruined. You, Louis C.K., are the real victim in all of this. Audio has emerged of a recent C.K. um, set, let's call it that, in which he, um, jokingly, let's call it that, bemoaned the cash he'd lost over the past year, mocked victims of the Parkland shooting, riffed about race and dick size, and whined, my life is over. I don't give a shit. You can be offended. It's okay while standing on stage, in front of an audience that have paid to see him. Oh, boo fucking who, Louis, getting up in. Also, it turns out, despite getting killed off-screen in the fifth season of House of Cards, Kevin Spacey is back as Frank Underwood. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. It is just Spacey taking to his Facebook, seemingly in character, to defend himself after the news broke that he was to be arraigned on a felony sexual assault charge. And in transport news, the road to Damascus is currently blocked by angry men doing U-turns. Did you see the footage... I mean, it's not new, but it seems to have been doing the rounds again of Louis C.K. talking to Chris Rock and Joe Seinfeld and Ricky Gervais. Yeah. In which he uses the N-word. Yeah. Well, seek it out for yourself. Ricky Gervais laughs like he's just been shown a picture of a willy. Yeah. And Jerry Seinfeld's face is the reason that we continue to love Jerry Seinfeld because he is just absolutely horrified by it. Chris Rock didn't call it out. No, he didn't. And he got a lot of stick for that on Twitter because he didn't call it out. He just sort of went along with the, in inverted commas, japes. <laughs> Ricky Gervais, though, fucking hell. He was having a lovely time, wasn't he? Yeah. A bit too lovely. All publicity is good publicity, right? 
Well, it is if you're Greg's and you launch a vegan sausage roll during a row vacuum created by Parliament's break. I mean, just imagine it. We weren't all calling each other twats for five beautiful minutes. Twat. The bakery chain. Is it a bakery chain? I didn't know what to call it. I've written that down. I think so. Go on then. It's a bakery chain. The purveyor of beige goods (laughs) (laughs) was in no small way aided by Piers Morgan, whose gammon brought all the boys to his yard. I mean, vegan sausage rolls. I didn't die in two world wars, so that could happen. (laughs) R.I.P. Hannah. There was some suggestion that Morgan and Greggs were working together. A bit like pastry and sausage in a delicious roll. And you know what? I don't actually care, and I don't care if they sell vegan sausage rolls or not. As long as they've got something we can offer our monkey overlords when they arrive, I'm good. And please, God, let that be soon. And it was probably a bad week to be manning the Home Office's Twitter feed, thanks to a big festive reveal as to just what Brexit might mean for EU citizens already living in the UK. Well, sort of. For those EU nationals wishing to remain in the post-Brexit wastelands of Britain after June 30th, 2021, they'll have to apply to the EU settlement scheme, as outlined by a very cheery video. Don't know if any of you caught it. I didn't have the will. I couldn't. It made me want to start crying. I have Christmas off. Yeah. Yeah. So the video, apparently, uh, some Twitter users claimed using stock photography, which was sort of lols in itself, of multicultural millennials doing continental things like alfresco dining and working as a barista. Laughing at salad. (laughs) Like, literally, a man, like, making someone a coffee, being like, hey! Was lambasted by social media users, not least for the £65 fee, or £32.50 if you're under 16, payable to apply to continue living in your own home. Bargain! God! Anybody want some good news? Yes, I don't believe there is any. Hannah's correct. Let's move on. No, no, wait. It's a huge tip of the hat to the 5 million women in Kerala, India, who created a 620-kilometre human chain across the state as a protest in support of gender equality amid a row over access to a prominent Hindu temple. The traditional ban on women of, quote, menstruating age approaching the Hindu Sabaramala temple was overturned by India's Supreme Court in September 2018, but many women have still been prevented from approaching, quite often by blokes throwing stones or other violent measures. The standoff continues, but that good news I promise you, that wall of women was a pretty damn beautiful act of solidarity and a cracking start to 2019. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we open the Daily Mail at random to find a portal to the dark past when women were pilloried for any and all behaviour, particularly if they're having a nice time. How very dare they? Because, yes, the January 1st edition of The Whale was its annual slapdown of women drinking the nerve of us. Because nothing is worse than a drunk woman. Nope, not even taking as many upskirt shots of women out on the tiles as possible and then publishing the worst 88 of them without their permission is as bad as an actual drunk woman. I know, I know, taking pot shots at the Daily Mail for sexism is like shooting fish in a barrel. But these fish are cunts and I will never tire of shooting them. Agreed. Mm. (laughs) Hello and welcome to January. Hooray! And not just any January, but the January that heralds a year of political chaos, economic crises and the realisation that preppers make the best neighbours. Happy 2019, folks. Or... If you're my gran, and anything pronounced in a non-standard format is Americanised and therefore culturally redundant, happy 2019. In case you haven't noticed, this is not one of your regular easy-on-the-ear podcast hosts. 
No, you're a couple of hundred miles of motorway and a whole hell of a lot of glottal stops from Kansas now, my friends. If you don't know who I am, and let's face it, if you don't deliver pizzas in Glasgow, I can't imagine why you would. I'm Paula Must Try Harder Maguire, trier of all things, failure of most, and the woman who spent 30 years under anxiety's cosh only to finally realise I could use the other end of the cosh against it. And I'm here with my guide to all things positivity. Wait, stick with me. I promise I'll only be a few minutes and I won't mention affirmations once. Well, not more than once anyway. As self-appointed PR manager for all things positivity, I think we need to address the elephant in the secret. Sorry, the secret in the room. You know what I mean. These days, positivity has become a reported cure-all for everything from long-term conditions to a shitty relationship and anything that turmeric-infused yoga can't fix in between. And if it works for you, brilliant. Vibrate your way to a better life, my friend. But for the rest of us, positivity is a much simpler concept about managing to maintain an underlying buffer of hope and contentment when all around is turning to ripen-at-home manure? Am I asking you to become a vision of happiness at all times? God, no. We might share some syllables, but Pollyanna, I am not. Most days, I can't raise a smile with a knock-knock joke and a cherry-picker. All I am saying is that during the worst times of my life, the chronic anxiety, the depression, even the grief, my stepping stone back up always stems from the belief that there really was an up to step to. But don't just take my word for it. Here are the big five reasons for topping up your positivity pot whenever you get the chance. Granted, I compiled this list, so you're literally still taking my word for it. Sorry. Number five. It's contagious, but not so much that the CDC will be at your front door in hazmat suits. Obviously, it's never a good idea to tell someone who's struggling to cheer up. But since we're not insensitive dopes, we clearly wouldn't be doing that anyway. Maintaining a level of realistic positivity, though, not only draws others to you, it shines a light for others to see, sometimes when they need to see it most. Number four. Here's the real secret. You don't have to be happy to be positive. It's absolutely fine to feel like shit on the shoe of a shire horse. In fact, it's recommended. Feel what you feel. It's the only way through it. But positivity runs across the whole spectrum of emotions. So even if you're not grinning like a cat from Chorley, just being able to recognise that the feelings are temporary but your resolve is unwavering can be enough to pull you through the worst of times. Number three. Your brain, oh dainty little flower, is trying desperately to protect you. Not only will it always err towards convincing you that the world is a terrifying place, it will weight that negativity so heavily that even just to find balance, you'll need to heap a hernia load on the positive end of the scale. You can't really blame it. It's much safer to always believe the risk isn't worth taking or that the worst is going to happen. After all, evolution taught it that the best way to escape bears is to believe everything out there is Winnie the Pooh and leg it at the first whiff of honey. So play it safe and keep that homo habilis alive. Or live a little and remind your brain that the only hunter-gathering required of you is a late-night supermarket run when the chorizo has run out. Number two, the downside. Yep, that's right. Positivity is so considerate that even its downside is half-decent. Whenever something is definitely good for you, there will, of course, always be research showing that it's going to kill you slowly in your sleep. And positivity, it seems, is no different. So while it's widely been shown that optimism improves productivity, resilience and well-being, the downside of feeling up can include being less prepared for disappointment and less likely to worry about potential health concerns to the point that you might not actually act upon them. Weighing it up 
I've decided to take my chances with a more cheerful but perhaps slightly abridged existence. Number one. The best revenge, we're told, is a life well lived and with a healthy dose of positivity in the armoury, living well, regardless of anyone else's intentions otherwise, is a much more defensible position. Insulating yourself with a layer of positivity means that when things do get tough, no matter how much of other people's drama lands on your lawn, it's not getting through your front door. So try to keep hold of your hope, no matter what 2019 chucks at you, even if only to piss off those doing the throwing. There you have it. Whether you're in it for your health, for revenge, or just to wind up your own worrywart hippocampus, there's something for everyone with positivity. The way I look at it, currently through the wrong end of a cough bottle, is if things could be made even slightly better by turning my frown at least sideways, then surely it's worth the effort. And at least the laughter lines will be evenly distributed. Basically, my attitude towards positivity can be summed up in one of those irritating inspirational quotes attributed to everyone from John Lennon to the Raggy Dolls. Just remember, it'll all be alright in the end. If it's not alright, it's not the end. But this is the end. I hope that's alright. Got plans for Valentine's Day? No, me either. Actually, that's a lie. I do. And those plans are moving to a new location as of February the 14th in London. We will be at King's Place near King's Cross and we will be hosting the fantastic Dame Claire of Balding and the excellent Sarah Pascoe. Tickets are on sale now. So, you know, get them quickly because they are going to sell like baked goods that are warm. Get yourself over to www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue where you can find out about this and all of our other excellent shows. We are joined by Betsy West and Julie Cohen, directors of a new documentary, RBG, which is, of course, about the US Supreme Court judge, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thanks very much for joining us, guys. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good to be here. You started making this film in June 2016. The film is even more timely now than we could have predicted back then, obviously. Than we could have predicted, frankly. Than than anyone in the world. Who knew? (laughs) Anyone would have wanted to predict, possibly, yeah. So what prompted you to make this film at that time? Well, it was actually January of 2015 that we first came up with the idea. And that was really because uh, Justice Ginsburg had gained a lot of attention because of the very stinging dissent she had written as a Supreme Court justice as the court was moving to the right. And that's when she got the nickname Notorious RBG in 2013-14. And so Julie and I knew that uh, beyond her positions, which many progressives were flocking to, that she also had an extraordinary history as a women's rights litigator. She literally changed the world for American women. We thought, hey, you know, her fans may not know the whole story. You know, the people who love the notorious RBG, who wear the t-shirts, who carry the tote bags, who possibly get the tattoos. Uh, There's an even bigger, better story here. So that's why we decided to do it. We really didn't have a a crystal ball. We didn't know that Donald Trump was going to become president. We really didn't know that the Me Too movement was going to explode or all the other things that made her life and her story so relevant. The notorious RBG. 
the t-shirts and all the stuff that you see in the film she's described throughout the documentary as being sort of quite quiet and serious so apart from obviously all the incredible things she's done that as you point out maybe not a lot of people actually knew about of that younger generation why do you think she's captured the imagination of young America in the way that she has? Well I think there's a variety of reasons that Justice Ginsburg has captured the attention of millennials and even uh, small children little girls all, all kinds of generations the dissents that she's written in recent years have really felt like they spoke to a moment in American history going back even before the Trump presidency began as the Supreme Court on some of the key decisions began shifting to the right Justice Ginsburg became a voice of dissent, kind of speaking up for reproductive rights and voting rights and other rights that progressives in America were fearing were beginning to be eroded. So that's one piece of it, kind of the serious legal piece of it. But, you know, there's another piece as well. Law students started making these internet memes of this, like, you know, teeny little, now 85-year-old intellectual grandmother calling her the notorious RBG, of course, a play on the notorious B.I.G., and, you know, can't spell truth without Ruth and like all the pe- people literally getting her face tattooed yeah. on their shoulder. Part of it is just almost like the humor of this juxtaposition of a teeny, elderly, soft-spoken intellectual being seen as a rock star, rap star icon. But the great thing is Justice Ginsburg responded to that so well. She's seen mm. herself as a teacher her whole life. And she kind of got that this is a teaching opportunity to spread her message about the really important principles of equality under the U.S. Constitution to a whole new audience that might not ordinarily care about constitutional law. What I find really impressive about her is that actually, and it comes through in your documentary, she's a, a big proponent of the idea that you don't have to agree with someone to like them. You don't have to agree with someone to work with them. And that actually is quite an old-fashioned idea currently. It's it's a strange juxtaposition that they have warmed to her, but she is espousing these relatively old-fashioned views. Absolutely. I mean, when we first started making the film, people would say she can't really be friends with Justice Antonin Scalia, who was her ideological opposite. He had a completely different view of the Constitution, that it was kind of, you know, writ in stone and could never change, whereas Justice Ginsburg's view is that the Constitution is more flexible. And the founders may have had slaves and they didn't give rights to women, but we, our society has evolved and our Constitution, the bedrock principles of our Constitution can apply to minorities, women, LGBT, etc. That's her point of view. Okay, so here they have these diametrically opposed positions and yet they were close personal friends. They shared a love of opera. They shared a love of humor. Justice Scalia was a very funny man, and uh, Justice Ginsburg loves to laugh, and she also has a pretty sharp wit. And they also met as intellectual equals. They were not afraid to engage on these issues, to debate with each other, and perhaps to sharpen each other's debating points. It just, it wasn't a problem for them. How do you think she's going to get on with Kavanaugh? This might come as a little bit of a surprise, but really almost by definition, the nine justices of the Supreme Court 
really should and kind of have to get along. Justice Ginsburg mentions in our film that when they meet in conference, they begin every one of those often weekly meetings by each justice shaking the hand of each other justice. Very different than the way other branches of our government work. You know, I've seen a bit of your guys' mm. parliamentary debates and like oh, warmth yeah. and handshaking mm. like isn't really what it's all about. Yeah. And so whatever one might feel about somebody's nomination process and whatever you might feel of their view of the you know way this that constitutional law should be applied and interpreted there's a real benefit to collegiality because you're often trying to kind of narrowly thread the needle when you're coming up with an opinion so you can get as many of the other justices on board hoping for that five-member majority that they're all constantly jockeying for. And just because Justice Ginsburg is known for some of her liberal opinions and dissents on some of the hot-button issues, there's all kinds of cases that come before the Supreme Court. And you're always trying to get that fifth vote. So my guess is trying to get along will will be her plan, as it always has been. Having watched obsessively the Kavanaugh hearings couldn't be more different. I think it was Orrin Hatch at the end said, well, I don't like her opinions, but I can't deny she's qualified for the job. Yeah, it was a very different experience. And, you know, watching the Kavanaugh hearings in light of just finishing this documentary about Justice Ginsburg was really kind of mind bending because she went into the hearings having been nominated by President Bill Clinton, and she presented her view of her life, the discrimination that she had faced as a brilliant young lawyer, and yet she couldn't get a job, and then her work as a litigator arguing uh, before the Supreme Court and winning a series of cases that changed the world for American women, made them first-class citizens. You know, she was very forthright. She did not hide the fact that she was a, a supporter of reproductive rights and of abortion. And when it came to the vote, Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican and an opponent of abortion, basically said, look, I don't agree with all of her views, but she was appointed by a liberal president. She's a liberal and uh, she's well qualified for this job and I support her. The vote was overwhelmingly in her favor. I think it was 96 to 3. It's hard watching... (laughs) The circus that went on in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, even prior to the allegations of Dr. Blasey Ford, uh, it's, it's a different time. How does one go about living when the entire nation is obsessed with the fact that you might die? I think that Justice Ginsburg, her whole life has been someone who is just focused beyond how ordinary human beings can focus. Betsy and I had the opportunity to spend time with her in a number of contexts where you would expect she might be distracted by us having cameras in her face and she appeared not to notice them. Yes, Justice Ginsburg is deeply aware of how focused the American public is on her health and well-being. In fact, she finds it somewhat amusing. But that said, she lives her life day to day the way she always has. Like, what's the next task? How do I accomplish it? What's the best strategy for achieving what I want to achieve? Let's put my head down and just do it. Like, that's how she's always lived Mm. from the time she was a child. She knows how to filter out what she can't affect and just do her work. That's what she does. It did look particularly joyful to sit and watch her watching 
Kate McKinnon doing her <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. I enjoyed watching that a lot. Yes, I mean, we, we had the great opportunity to show her the footage of the impression on her, of her on Saturday Night Live. Obviously, um, well, to those who haven't spent time with Justice Ginsburg, we will tell you that when she's in her robes that way anyway, we've never seen her dancing in the, in the style. <laughs> no. that, uh, I, that's not really her thing. But the depiction of toughness and badassery that is shown by Kate McKinnon, there is some grain of truth yeah. and some connection to that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the actual person, like really got a charge out of watching that. And, you know, for someone who's known to be super serious, seeing her kind of lose it laughing yeah. felt like belly laughing was so much fun. Yeah, I mean, she's not a regular TV viewer. According to her kids, she doesn't really know how to turn on the the TV. She doesn't have the time. So um, she'd heard about the impression. We didn't tell her we were going to show it to her. We just put it in and press play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she pauses and then is that Saturday Night Live? And then she just lost it. It's a great moment in the film. You've made this film about this fantastic woman who's done so much for women's rights in the United States. You worked with an almost entirely female team. Was that important to you? It was definitely important. important. Yeah, it was intentional. We started with our camera woman, our wonderful Claudia Rashke. We just thought, look, we're making a film about a feminist icon, and let's bring along a top-flight camera woman. And, you know, she was great. And then it went from there, our editor and Mm -hmm. composer and really all of the top creative roles. Cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if it's true in um, if this is true in the British film industry. I would strongly guess that it is. It's become like kind of conventional wisdom in the film industry in America that it's like very, very difficult to find women to fill the key creative and executive roles. It It may be rare, but I think our experience would say that it's not that hard. It just was a oh, matter no. of intention well, yeah. and, and yeah. trying and making a little effort to, oh, you know, they to come exist. up with the team. They were there. They were out there. They yeah. were experienced. It's not like we were having to, like, nab people, um, yeah. like, in, in the market. We, oh, you, no, know. you can use a mobile phone. Come here and film for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we had some really talented people, including some talented men. We weren't adverse to working with a few talented men. And, uh, you know, it was a great team. You must have left an awful lot on the cutting room floor. I mean, how many other films do you have enough time to make? Well, you know, I think that we included the very best that fit the narrative structure. And, you know, there are a couple of stories in this. There's what she did as a feminist lawyer. There's her work on the Supreme Court. There's an amazing feminist love story with her beloved husband, Marty. I know. (laughs) Everybody wants to have a Marty. And, you know, she says that was the luckiest thing that ever happened to her. So, you know, we were trying to craft an entertaining film that would engage an audience, educate an audience about something serious, constitutional law, and give insight into this really extraordinary human being. Julie, Betsy, I believe... RBG is released in the UK on the 4th of January, is that right? Yes, at the beginning of January the film is opening and will also be dreaming at some point. And where can we follow you guys or the film? rbgmovie.com is the website where you can find out everything about RBG and you can follow on Twitter or follow at 
filmmaker Julie or at Betsy West. Send me pictures of your tattoos, people. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. actually, we're really curious to hear how the British audiences yep. respond. So British women and men, too, but British women, especially after you see the film, send us a tweet and let us know what you think. Excellent. Thank you very much, ladies. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, and any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. Hello, we're joined by Marina Gask, journalist and co-founder with Faye Watts of Audrey, a spanky new online magazine for women who want to change their lives. That's correct. Hello. Hi, Marina. Thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. Tell us about Audrey. Audrey is an online magazine and community for women in their, I would say, late 40s to early 50s who want to do something exciting with their lives. We noticed that a lot of the women we know in that age bracket are seizing the day, are copying the diem and (laughs) and having adventures and changing careers and going travelling. And this is not really how women who are around the age of 50 tend to be represented at all in the media and in advertising, for example. It just doesn't feel like the kind of women I know are visible to the general public in that way. And so we wanted to give those women a voice and galvanise women like us who have reached a point in their lives where they kind of go, hmm, I actually think I'd like to do something else now. And was there a turning point for you that made you think about doing this? There were a few turning points along the way. A major one was talking to a friend who's a single mum and both of her children were leaving home. One was going to uni, one was going to do something else. And instead of the usual narrative of, woe is me, I'm going to be an empty nester, she was telling me about her exciting plans to go globetrotting with laptop in tow and conduct her business from different points around the, the world, around the planet. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And she said, the thing is, Marina, I don't want to be one of those tragic mums sitting around waiting for my uni children to phone me once a week and feeling sorry for myself. I want to have my own fresh start and do something exciting. And I thought, wow, so do I. So that was really one of the big triggers for Audrey. And my own son left for uni around about the same time as the launch of Audrey. And it's no coincidence. It's very different, isn't it, to have women carp in the DM, as you say, in this way, as opposed to how it used to happen in history. Why do you think it's changed? I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, I'm in my 50s and I grew up with role models like Debbie Harry, Grace Jones, Madonna, mm-hmm. Susie Sue, Chrissy Hind, of course, all women who've forged their own way and lived life differently to perhaps the way women did in the past. And they're a bit older than me and I look up to them and think, wow, okay, so I don't have to sit around in my curlers and my slippers waiting for retirement and grandchildren. No, I don't at all. I can actually do something different with my life. And I think there's a lot of women out there who feel the same way. Do you think some of it is also, well, there's just more options now and I guess divorce is also a bit more sort of socially acceptable now and when relationships break down, that kind of gives people a bit of a new lease of life as yeah, well? There's, there's definitely that. There's a study that's found that whereas men post-50 
feel like taking it easy, possibly because they've worked really, really hard all their lives and they just feel like kind of easing off a bit. For women, it's the opposite. Obviously, I'm not saying all women, but there's a real trend among women post-50 to kind of go, right, what's next? Whereas men want to wind down. And so if you're married and you're the same age and you don't have the same attitude, it can be really, really hard. I have a friend who is going through that right now, that same thing of kids have just left and she's looked and she's gone is this what it is now? Mm. It's not what I want it to be. And has had the gumption to do something about it, which is incredible. Yeah. I saw my mum and dad, obviously, who divorced, and my mum has absolutely no desire to find another partner whatsoever. And I think that's just because she's like, you know, I spent 30 years ironing your fucking shirts. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to iron anyone else's shirts. I'm, I'm good, actually. Like, I'll just do me now. Fair enough, but you know, there's another factor that somebody pointed out to me, which is that our generation, it's our friends that become our family. Mm. And if we have a great group of friends, male, female, whatever, then we don't necessarily need a husband to feel happy. It might be that we get all our joy and excitement and pleasure from doing stuff with friends, be that backpacking, be that nights out, be that whatever, you know, sharing our lives. And maybe we don't actually need a husband to do that. I mean, having said that, I'm a very happily married woman. (laughs) Sorry. No, (laughs) I apologise. Sorry, mister. (laughs) I think also, if you're in this age bracket, there's a chance you may have more financial freedom. Mm -hmm. You may have already paid off your mortgage or you you may not have a mortgage but you may just decide okay I'm going to jack in my current life and go and do something different and not be held back by social norms I also think feminism has played its role I didn't fully understand it all but I knew about the women of Green Common for example and I think being influenced by knowing that women can can sort of take control of situations and can craft their own destiny has given me a sense of doing that for myself. But also my own mum published her first book at 83. Oh, my goodness. I know. And I just think, well, okay, there's women all around us doing this, not just in their 50s. But I feel like nobody is really recognising them. Nobody's really harnessing that revolution that's happening. So Audrey is all about giving those women a voice. You touched on it earlier, certainly in advertising. Women of that age are invisible. Well, they're either invisible or they're represented in a quite cringy way. Mm. And the women I know are not cringy at all. I mean, they don't look 50. They don't dress 50. They certainly don't behave it. And what I, does that even mean well, What does it even mean? It doesn't mean anything. We're ageless, aren't we? We're, mm-hmm. we're an ageless society in a way. I think it's a shame if women feel held back. You know, all this thing about, oh, God, I'm going to be 50. Most women I know, once they turned 50, once they'd actually got past that hideous milestone, actually felt liberated you know, post-menopause, kind of past that dreaded thing. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Great. I'm going to self-reinvent. I'm going to reboot my life. And I love that. I think it's amazing. And I've, I've interviewed lots of women for Audrey who have done that. They inspire me because they've done things that I'm now thinking I'd like to try. Like I've got a friend who's the same age as me who's taken up mountain biking and she's crazy about it. You know, she does really, really daring stunts on mountain bike. You know, she said all the women that she does it with are all in their 50s. There's a whole world out there happening and nobody's really representing it, or certainly not enough in the media. What kind of adventures have you found these women are going on? Oh, all sorts. So backpacking, you know, taking midlife back gap years, launching businesses, retraining 
there's a real trend for, I don't know about men, but certainly women in their 50s to retrain as teachers, for example, which is fantastic because they have amazing experience, amazing life skills to pass on. Writing books, taking up extreme sports like, <laughs> like amazing. you know, like surfing, running marathons. There's so many adventures to be had. And I think there's this sense of I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to set myself a challenge. So I set myself the challenge to launch Audrey. It was about a year ago when, when the idea came about. And I thought to myself, well, what if it fails? Like most women, you know, I have confidence dips when I just think, oh, I don't know if I can do it. And I did. I did. I, I really did worry about it failing. But then I thought, actually, no, failure would be not doing it at all. I've got to do this. Mm-hmm. I had just such a strong feeling that it would be welcome. And it is. You know, we're getting an enormous response on social media. And more and more women are coming forward with great stories that we want to tell. And we also offer lots of advice on the site for women who want to make a big change but don't quite know how to make the first step. So maybe they feel a bit stuck in their current situation, you know, maybe their financial situation or an unhappy marriage or they can't see how they're going to leave their job. But often it's about it's about changing your mindset. There are so many options, but you, you have to be able to see them and you have to be able to contemplate them and, and really ask yourself. And this is the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of women is, if I did something else, what would I do? I don't know what that would be because there's almost too many options and I don't know where to start, you know. It's all about finding something that will match your values, finding a purpose, whatever that may be. And it might be doing something alongside your day-to-day job. It might be that you don't even leave what you're doing, but but start writing a book as a sort of, as they say, side hustle, you know, as, as something that you're doing as a hobby. But it's more than a hobby. It, it's like your purpose. So while you're earning your living, you're still finding fulfilment through something that you really, really love. I think we all tend to put ourselves into little boxes and we all tend to, to self-limit. And it's only when we actually meet other women or, or read about other women who've broken free from those constraints and just thought, actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something amazing. Um, it's when you read about them or meet them that you really think, wow, I could do that. That's, she's like me. That's completely achievable. I mean, obviously, we have to face up to our own financial situation. But even, in, even there, I think sometimes we limit our choices according to the situation we're in and we don't see the bigger picture. And let's face it, we only have one life. When you get to 50... I think it's really worth looking at your life and thinking, am I really happy doing what I'm doing? Because if you're not, you could well be doing something else that makes you way, way happier. If a woman listening to this and thinking, yeah, I'd really like to do something, I'd like to cock a snook to the midlife comfort zone, how would she go about being audacious? What would be your top tips for doing it? Obviously, go to audreyonline.co.uk and take, take loads of brilliant advice from the site. We've spoken to experts to get that advice. It's not just from the top of my head. I would say write down the things that make you feel fulfilled and weigh up how you could actually make that happen. In some cases, it does really help to see a life coach. If you're going to go to a life coach, find a really good one. There are recognised bodies that oversee the life coaching industry. So make sure that you go to a life coach who's accredited. If you want to launch a business, and a lot of women do, I think it's a really good idea to get some business coaching and also obviously do courses in, you know, actually the practicalities of launching a business because there are many, many pitfalls. And while there are lots of people launching businesses out there, there's lots failing because they don't 
mm. know enough. They haven't really thought through the, the realities of it. I would say a really important factor is to surround yourself with people who are going to encourage you to do it rather than naysayers. And often, this is something a lot of women have said, is often they find that when they say, I'm going to launch a business or I'm going to write a book or I'm going to go travelling for a year, there are people around them, sometimes their nearest and dearest, saying, what do you want to do that for? So avoid those people because... I think sometimes people can feel a bit threatened when you want to do something daring and, and outrageous. Why is it called Audrey? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, of course, there's a few reasons. It's a really cool name. Obviously, there's the, there's the glamour of Audrey Hepburn. There's the self-made woman who is Audrey from Coronation Street. <gasps> a total goddess. Lovely stuff. I was, gonna, I was almost going to ask about that, but so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, she's my favourite. But we also love the fact that it's got the same root as audacious. So our catchphrase is be audacious. And being audacious is all about daring. It's not, not just thinking about doing something. It's daring to do it. And that's what these women are doing. And we love the idea that Audrey has the same root as audacious. Where can we find you and Audrey? I can be found at marinagask.com. And Audrey is at audreyonline.co.uk. On Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, we are at Be More Audrey. So Be More Audrey is another of our many catchphrases because we're encouraging women to be more Audrey, to, to have that audacity, to, to push themselves and challenge themselves and seize the day. Thank you. And one last question. What's your mum's book called? <laughs> it's called Nell and the Girls. Nell, as in Nellie and the girls, and it's all about my mum's family's experiences in wartime France, and it's amazing. Thanks so much for joining us, Marina. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am in deepest Peckham with Kalechi Okafor, actor, director, podcaster and founder of the Kolechnikov Fitness Studio. <laughs> Kalechi, hi. Hi. I've just had a go at the Twerkworks Beginners class. How did you find it? I found myself to be, as I thought it would be, extremely <laughs> awkward. You were great and I like to watch everyone the whole time and you said when you first arrived you were like, I am the worst dancer. But people, the ones who say I'm the worst dancer, never are they the worst dancer. They're always great. I didn't even pay her to say that. I was so glad I couldn't see my face. I know I'm concentrating really hard and I'm just really scared about how serious my face is. I'm saying, when I'm really concentrating, my eyes pop out. <laughs> like, and that's why I turn people away from the mirror because I think in society, the way that women, is, you know, the way we view ourselves is always to criticise. We fitted the mirrors in and I found that people just got so distracted looking at themselves and you could see that they were looking at, oh, I don't like that, I don't like that. So I just thought, okay, well, we just won't look at the mirrors then. How long has this place existed for and what inspired it? So the studio, this particular one in Peckham has been open since 2017. The year before that, I had a studio in Clapton, so that was the first one. And that was just a little, little room in an industrial estate. Did it, made it look all fancy and pretty, but it was very small. I just felt that there was a need for a space that women could go to. It was open to everyone, but primarily women could go to and feel glad about who they are. I have been a personal trainer for years and I became a personal trainer because acting work in the UK for, I guess, for a black British woman is so hard to come by. So I thought, what's the next best thing that I enjoy as much as acting? Fitness. So I became a personal trainer. And while I was doing that, I thought I want to challenge myself. 
So I, I started going to pole dance classes and I loved it. Zoomed through the levels. They said, do you want to teach pole dance? I started teaching, but noticing that there was something missing in the teaching. There was something missing when you looked at the walls. There was nothing really celebrating womanhood. It seemed like everything was showing you what you should look like and not just celebrating what you already look like. And I think that that's the best place to start. So from then I felt like I wanted to have my own space. And I started saving the money that I was going to use for a wedding, used it to open the studio in Clapton, did a bit of crowdfunding. That brought in a bit of money for the first studio. After a year, it, it was just too small. So moved to Peckham and it's just grown ever since. I don't know if you saw, but one of the ladies that was here, she took off her wig and put it to the side. And that's what makes me happy, that women can feel so comfortable that they're like, okay, I'm hot, I'm going to put my wig to the side and not feel that they have to pretend or be anything else. So what you do here, and on your website you say fitness should be fun, basically, which I absolutely 100% agree with, and I think so much of that gets lost in our education system, and so what you do here predominantly is pole dance classes and twerking. Can you explain a little bit what twerking actually is for those who don't really understand? So twerking is quintessentially a New Orleans type of dance, but it's derived from um, West African dance, mainly like the Yorubas and the Igbo people of Nigeria. And due to the transatlantic slave trade with the kind of enslavement of the Africans, they travelled and this dance made its way to the Americas and then it changed into something else because obviously they're in a different environment. When I would look at it, I didn't ever even plan on teaching twerk. We just dance. In Nigeria, we just dance. And I started to look at the way that we dance and what twerk is seen as and just thought I would accentuate the West African footwork, that kind of thing, and really bring that to the fore so people could realise that it's actually an art form. It's not something to be kind of like denigrated in mainstream culture that is just hip-hop and it's just about the hypersexualization of women's bodies. It's an actual art form and it takes a lot of technique to do. So I wanted to kind of bring back the respect that it deserves into it and that's how I started teaching it. Obviously, there is a lot of mm-hmm. kind of connotations, I guess, mm-hmm. around twerking and there are, as you say, associations with like hypersexuality. Mm-hmm. Is that just gross misrepresentation? Or? It's definitely gross misrepresentation, but I think it's interesting that A lot of art forms, I guess, that originate from black women are denigrated because historically speaking, the bodies of black women have been hypersexualized and that is inextricably linked to slavery and colonization and things like that. So I remember reading the definition of twerking on Wikipedia or something and it said something like to dance provocatively or provocative actions using the hips. And I thought, but the hips are something that we sit on every day. That's not provocative. It's just interesting the way that words are used and they're loaded with meaning to almost justify the access that people feel that they have to our bodies. And that's for women generally. And that's why I was drawn to pole dance, why I was drawn to twerk, because societally we're told that these things are not what good women do, not what nice women do. Yet there's such a show of strength, of grace of agility why shouldn't it be celebrated and once we take away the male gaze from it which is what I aim to do take it out of the male gaze do it because you want to do it then it becomes liberating and I think that that's how we kind of move forward from the kind of conversation that we have now that oh twerk that's a bit 
you know, slutty, we're not meant to do that. And it's like, no, it's not. It's, it's just a dance. It's quite a different kind of class to, you know, if you just were at your local leisure centre gym. It's really good fun and it's like, it's quite empowering. And as I said, I felt a bit awkward because I'm not a great mover. <laughs> but you just sort of have to get over yourself, yeah. don't you? But what would you say to someone who's feeling a bit sort of shy about trying out a new class, maybe dancing or something that was a bit out of their comfort zone? For me, our comfort zones are where things go to die. Nothing grows, nothing grows in the comfort zone. And you only really discover aspects of yourself that you didn't know were there if you go out and try new things. And even the things that make you feel silly, because I think that in doing the things that we don't feel especially confident at, there is a dying of the ego. And so then your actual self comes through because we're more than our ego. We're more than what society tells us, especially women. And that means pushing the ego aside that tells you, oh, I look fat in that. Oh, I look really awkward in this and just moving and movement especially with the pelvis area using the sacral region it reignites what we're meant to celebrate about ourselves as women it's January you've eaten too many mince pies or whatever you've decided well, fuck that who cares if you've eaten too you've just decided <laughs> yeah. you're gonna go and do something physical top tips for someone who is starting out in the world of fitness drink lots of water start there if you can commit to drinking water that really helps a lot of people think they don't like an exercise or their fitness class but actually they were just dehydrated when they went and that's one thing that people don't consider often that they just weren't hydrated enough to be able to do the class um, I found that when I started Bikram yoga I thought this is horrible but I just wasn't hydrated the more hydrated I became the easier it became and I would just say be kind to yourself that is the top tip for anything but most especially fitness you have to be kind to yourself we watch videos on Instagram and just generally across social media and you see people people backflipping, lifting a barbell, jumping, uh, somersaulting, and you think, but I'll never do that. No one's asking you to. Be kind to yourself and appreciate the process. Just start somewhere and just love yourself for starting. And actually, you said something during the class today that I thought was interesting and I liked a lot. You said, don't think about what other people look like. You all look different. You're all going to look different. Mm -hmm. Just think about yourself. Think about what you're doing. Mm. And it's, it's important. I think that having these classes are my way of positively impacting womanhood and it's important for people to remind us that we're not going to look like the next woman it's not it's not possible and everything feels different so often in a class I'll say how do you feel not anything else just how do you feel because it's cathartic it's meant to be but also reminding people that someone might look like they're moving a particular way and you want to move like them but anatomically like in terms of physiologically we are different different um, lengths of limbs different range of movement so it's about using what you have and celebrating that. I try to create the choreography. I don't know, it's, it's as accessible as possible to different types of able bodies. And I do different workshops for disabled people as well. And I craft it slightly like differently. But it's just important to remember that you don't need to look like somebody else to be great. That's their body. Like, enjoy your body. So you are a podcaster as well. You have a podcast mm -hmm. called yeah. Say Your Mind, also um, <laughs> known as... Suck your mum. Yeah. Oh. I don't think I can say that. Uh. Officially known as say your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of myself as someone that would 
um, make a podcast, I just thought it would be tedious and I just thought, oh, I don't have much to say. <laughs> Everybody who'd have me as a guest on their show would say, you really should start your own podcast. You've got a lot to say and you know how to say it, how to articulate it. Then there was a particular thread that I wrote on Twitter about Muhammad Ali and the idea of transcending race because when he passed away, lots of news outlets kept saying, oh, you know, Muhammad Ali, his excellence transcended race. And I just thought that's an interesting concept that we have to be excellent in order to be seen as human. And I wrote this thread about it that actually none of us can transcend this racial construct. And then it got taken away, it got taken off. In that moment, I knew that I had to move my thoughts somewhere that I had more control over. So the podcast is really me documenting what I see, current affairs and things like that, but from my perspective as a black British woman in this day and age, all the podcasts that I'd come across, they weren't actually speaking to my experience. So I thought, well, why not? I listened to it today, it's very good. You kind of wrapped it up for now, haven't you? You're planning yeah. to go back to it? I want to go back to it, but I think it's important to get other voices in. So where can we find you and where can we find Kolechnikov on social media? So on social media is Kolechnikov underscore studio everywhere and the studio is in Peckham and it's on Kolechnikov.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Now, I know you're probably thinking, do Standard Issue have some great chops lined up for us to listen to in 2019? And the answer is, yes, we bloody do. For the rest of January, we've actually got some themed chops for you with Sunday interviews focusing on the subject of fertility. First up, when Mick and I were last in Dublin, we went to see the brilliant Aoife McArdle, who decided to go it alone and have IVF and raise a child as a single mother. And we had a brilliant time learning about why she did it, about how she did it, and about how she feels now. Spoiler alert, she feels great. And she has the most adorable daughter. Coming up the week after that, Mickey and Jen spoke to Nicola Salmon, who is a self-described fat fertility expert. And finally, in the last in this series, Mickey will be talking to the writer and all-round top woman, Christine Robertson about the indignity of IVF. So yeah, first one of those coming up on Sunday. Keep your ears peeled for the rest. And if you don't want to keep your ears peeled or your eye on Twitter, maybe just press subscribe and it will be waiting for you. Until next week. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy. What Disney did you do this week? This week I watched 2006's Cars. This is Pixar for Disney. It's actually the last film Pixar actually made on its own before Disney acquired it. But it was distributed by Disney, hence it falls into this list. It stars Owen Wilson, Paul Newman, Bonnie Hunt, Larry the Cable Guy. There's a mixed bag, if ever I saw one. It's quite an odd cast list. Yeah. Everything that's left on this list... We went through it the other day. There's eight, isn't there? Half of it is stuff that I've already seen and I just didn't want to see again. Some of it are ones that just sound awful and I dreaded them. And then Zootopia, I've been told, is good, so I was leaving that. I'm approaching this like, if I had to eat an entire tub of quality straight, I think I would leave one of those green triangle ones to the end to make the rest of it, make the strawberry creams seem less repulsive. And Cars, which I have seen before... 
This, this has to be with toffee penny, I reckon. That's just like, I don't want to eat it, but, you know, it's not as going to be as awful as a strawberry cream. Have either of you seen it? Due to an administrative error. <laughs> no, I have not. I'm sorry. Also due to an administrative error. Ever? Ever. Due to an administrative error. I have not seen it either. <laughs> well, well done. That's all I can say. Well done. N- nicely avoided. I know what a car is, though. Well, yeah. Does that help? Not really, oh, which no. I'll get on to. Okay. Do you want to tell us whether you liked it or not? I think... I mean, I that's why I... I yeah, I'm yeah. just putting that question did out I, Did I like it or not? Okay. In order to make that joke about Quality Street, which I don't actually eat very often, and I want to know whether those Quality Streets still actually exist, I went onto the Wikipedia page of Quality Street, and I had more fun there than I had watching cars. Fun facts. Your Quality Street finding mission was like a palate cleanser. It was. In 1909, their, their toffee factory burned down. Can you imagine the smell? That must have been glorious. They make them near me. I was going to say, is that in Halifax? Yeah, the factory's in Halifax. It's yeah. right opposite the, the train station. Yeah. We were there the other day. We were. I, I mean, I've been there a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we were there yeah. together the other day. Yeah. Do you know, in 2002, Saddam oh, Hussein hosted George Galloway and gave him some quality street. And Nestle were quite excited by this until they actually had a chance to think, I don't know who they were trying to dissociate (laughs) themselves with more, Saddam Hussein or George Galloway. I was kind of hoping you were going to say Saddam Hussein hosted a quality street fancy dress party and George Galloway came as the big purple one. Do you know, in the old days, there used to be a a gooseberry cream and a fig fancy. Oh, oh, I'd love a fig fancy. No, that is... You're joking, that's repulsive. Oh, no, I'd love... Do you not like a fig roll? No, fuck off, I'm not... if there being a fig fancy just reinforces my idea that whatever it is that people think is going to happen after Brexit, the 1950s were not better. Fig fancy, no, fuck off. No, but I'm not over this gooseberry... Everyone knows the cream ones are, like, gross, as previously discussed. I don't mind the coffee cream. No. You're weird. You're no. the only person I know who likes, apart from my mum, who likes coffee-flavoured sweets. But you don't even like I coffee. I don't like coffee, no. Friend I do love a bit of coffee cake, though. Friend of the show, Jordan Stevens, likes the Coffee Revel, as we discovered in a previous Yeah, interview. I quite like the Coffee Revel no. as well. No, that's yeah. the Russian roulette. The one I really hated when I was little was the Monty Lima nougat, which for some unapparent reason we all used to call Monty Melimar in our family, because that's what, what I thought they were called. Mon- Mont Melimar, yeah, that's what yeah. we called them. I don't Monty know what Bellimar. that is, which one's that? It was like the new girl one. I think it was blue. It was horrible. Anyway, should we get back to this film? Sure, yeah. So this opens with an internal monologue about speed and breakfast, which sounds a bit like a McConnellogue, actually. Uh, Matthew McConnellogue. It's about cars. It's about car racing. (laughs) So it opens at a car racing event that goes on for 10 minutes, which is nine minutes too long. No women are car racers in this world. Just FYI, no women. Anyway, it's the end of this season and there's three people who could possibly win the title. The legend, the runner-up and the rookie. We are supposed to like the rookie. That's the main character. He is called Lightning McQueen. He is our hero in as much as he is a total bellend. Is that Owen Wilson? That is Owen Wilson. He's about to go to the last race of the show and due to some really convoluted mishap, this film is way too long, by the way. I mean, basically, the sort of main plot doesn't kick in until about 26 minutes in. It's way too long. He's on the way to this thing, and he finds himself at a run-down town called Radiator Springs, which is essentially Ebbing, Missouri. It used to be on Route 66. Nobody stops there anymore, so it's become like everyone uses the new interstate, and it's become, like, tired and run-down, this town. Does Frances McDormand appear to save the day? No, she doesn't. God, you wish she would, because then that means there would be 
some women in this. I mean, I think there's about three. But anyway, moving on. Question is with this, what is this world that Cars is in? Are they living in a ruined civilization? You know, maybe Cars became sentient and took over the world. That's like Wally. That's option A. Because there's massive stadiums. Who built that stuff? Cars don't have opposable thumbs. They don't? No. So... Yeah, but, I mean, they're obviously good for something or other in this brave new world of... I don't know. Don't look at me. Look at me, look at me. Don't look at I me! Know, I was thinking exactly <laughs> that. Jen has got makeup like a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other option is that this is a world that humans have never lived in and cars have always been in charge of it. I mean, I don't know. There are girl cars, there are boy cars. Where, where, where do baby cars come from? I don't know. The boot... in the trunk so he turns up at this town and you know he's a complete dick and they make him less of a dick which is all very Disney isn't it now I mentioned Paul Newman Paul Newman's in this it makes me sad that this is Paul Newman's last film is it his swan song that is a shame that is is yeah and I I mean I have nothing to, to say about Paul Newman in this so should we just make a list of Paul Newman's best films okay why not okay so I mean I would say Cool Hand Luke I love to see your bottom full of eggs. <laughs> the Road to Perdition, oh, which should I have been his swan song, really. Oh, I love that film so much. He's so good in that. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, obviously. Lovely stuff. And The Tower and Inferno. I mean, what, is Anyone Cars number five? Is Cars number five in your list? <laughs> They're my favourite four as well, so I'm going to pass over to Jen. I don't want to say this. You've never seen a Paul Newman film? I've obviously seen a Paul Newman film. I'm sure I have. Anyway, I've not seen any of those. Have you tasted this salad dressing? Yes, they're quite nice. They're right. Okay, yeah. so number five, salad, <laughs> salad dressing. dressing. The whole point of this is, you know, he becomes a better person. And then a he... A car? Well, yeah, they do. Better. A better thing. <laughs> he helps the town, like, rebuild. And for people to come back through the town and make put it on the map again. But it's really odd because... It kind of suggests that what small towns really, really, really need is, like, really heavy traffic driving through them at all times. Every single town that's been bypassed, in my experience, reports that life <laughs> has improved dramatically. They, you know, I don't lose four cats a week, and I can let my children out into my front garden mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's a very odd message to be sending because it's it's sort of appealing to the idea that the 1950s were, you know, better and this town will be reborn. But you know what's going to happen, right? All of those shops are going to close down. There'll be fucking Starbucks in Radiator Springs. Black Lung. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is very odd. It's got one funny line in the whole of it. The whole film contains one funny line, which is outrageous for a Pixar film. And it's delivered by Larry the Cable Guy, so make of that what you will. <laughs> and... In it, somebody says he's got a piston. He's got a piston cup, which is the name of the award. And Larry, the cable guy's character, said he did what? And that is the only <laughs> funny joke in it. It uses fucking that pre-existing music stuff, which I absolutely hate it when Disney puts pop music mm. into their films. Just either don't have music or write some tunes. Who, I really who's delivering it. One of them is that love is a highway, which makes me want to just die inside. I want you to sing more of it. No, <laughs> no. There's basically no women. So in I'm it just at glancing all. across at Hannah's notepad, and it's just got written in massive capital letters with two exclamation marks, and she's not a massive exclamation mark user. Women. Yeah. No women. Well, there's who maybe I can think of. Maybe there are other ones, but one of them's a love interest. Oops. So yeah, I mean. 
cars. I fucking hated it. In fact, it's worse than I remember it being. I think the first time I watched it, I watched it with my nephew, and I actually think being around a child made it seem more likeable. But this is the worst Pixar film that I've seen, which is... Worse than Pocahontas? Pocahontas isn't Pixar. Okay, sorry, yeah. Yeah. No, it's not worse. Nothing is worse than... (laughs) Rabies is better than Pocahontas. (laughs) Strawberry creams are better than Pocahontas. She's gone too far. Uh, I have noticed when I've seen stills of cars, and this is very frustrating, it seems a massive oversight, that they have eyes, even though surely the headlights should be the yeah. eyes of a car. They have tongues. What? It sort of comes out of their bum. When bumper. they talk, does the yeah. boot, like... No, not, not the, boot, boot, the, the thing the at the front. The bonnet. bonnet. Oh, Jen doesn't drive, drive, by the way. <laughs> The front bit, the boots where the babies come from. Yeah, you don't want a tongue in there. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's a different film. I said about that, the better. Yeah. What score are you giving it? I'm, I'm giving it what? One what? One. Out of five. <laughs> One bank holiday traffic jam out of five. Okay. Next week, Zootopia. Which, if anybody wants to watch in advance... I believe is on the iPlayer because it was on over Christmas. Standard issue for all women.